A number of years ago when I worked with the Billy Graham team, I was in a particular large city in this nation. I'll leave the city unnamed just to protect its anonymity. And every time we moved into a city, we hired a number of people locally. One of the people we hired for the duration of that crusade effort was what we called inside an office runner, someone who was sort of a helper in many ways, moved a lot of boxes, got the mail, and things like that. And at the recommendation, the high recommendation of one of the leading churches in this particular city, we hired a young man to do that job. But we quickly became aware that he was pretty undependable. He almost never made it to work on time. Uh, When we had a special meeting where he needed to be there an hour early, one of his main jobs was to help get things set up. Sometimes he would come after the meeting started or not show up at all. When he would go out on a 20-minute errand to get the mail, sometimes he would be gone still an hour later and nobody knew where he was. You couldn't share confidential information with him because he talked too freely and you realize that that could be dangerous. So we began to appropriately talk about this and confront these things. And he would shape up for a few days and be a model employee, but then he would quickly fall back into those undependable patterns. And so finally, we just had to let him go, saying, you know, we're, we're, we're needing a level of consistency from you that you're either not able or perhaps not willing to give. Is there anyone in your life that's inconsistent and it's becoming very frustrating and difficult for you? Perhaps your dad uh, promised to take you fishing on Saturday and on you're really looking forward to it. You're looking forward to spending time with your dad and you enjoy fishing a lot. But on Friday evening, he says to you, well, something's come up at work and I just can't make it. We'll have to cancel or, or maybe you hire an employee at your company, and he's been sober for two years. He's a recovering alcoholic, but he goes on a binge, and he's out of work for an entire week, and it is so costly and disruptive, this inconsistent behavior. Or maybe your uh, rebellious son has finally come around. He's committed his life to Christ, and he's on a wonderful road. You're so happy and so excited for him. You're seeing tremendous progress, even great change in his character, but he started dating a a Christian girl. You're excited about that as well, but then you get the call that she's pregnant and that their life is really in turmoil, and, and now you're caught in the backwash of of all of that. Or maybe you're the volunteer coordinator for the children's ministry at your campus. And you love that job. You love to work with volunteers and you love serving children in the name of Jesus. And this one particular volunteer was so enthusiastic when she signed up, but then suddenly she doesn't show one weekend and doesn't call to give a heads up. And so children have to be turned away from the class, and parents are angry and frustrated. You know, inconsistent people can really make life difficult. 
Well, Jesus had an associate that was kind of like that. His name is Simon Peter. And to be honest with you, Simon Peter was sort of the patron saint of inconsistency when you think about it. When you study his story, you see that at one moment, Simon was filled with courage and faith enough to walk on water. But the next moment, he's up to his neck in seaweed and doubt. One moment, he has enough clarity theologically to say, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And the next moment, he's spouting the devil's line. And Jesus has to rebuke him. He has enough courage in the Garden of Gethsemane to take on a whole cohort of soldiers with a single sword and chops one of, their, one of them's his ear off. But just a matter of hours later, he cowers in fear when confronted by a little servant girl around a fire. I want us to study today in the series we're in called Dealing with Difficult People. I want us to study how we can relate and help the inconsistent people in our lives. And as always in this series, we're getting a lot of practical stuff for ourselves as well. And hopefully we can be our own diagnosticians and look in the mirror and make sure that we're applying these things to ourselves, right? But we've also got people in our lives that God has put them there. It could be family, co-workers, friends, neighbors. And God wants us to help these people become all God designed them to be. So we can learn a lot today from Jesus. In just a moment, we're going to be looking at some verses in Luke chapter 22. So if you have your Bible with you, you can find that right now. Luke chapter 22. And let's go on this journey together and learn some lessons from Jesus about how to help the inconsistent and help them become all God designed them to be. The first lesson, if you're taking notes, that I think we can learn in the way that Jesus, from the way Jesus related to Simon Peter, is that we should be discerning, make the distinction between hypocrisy and inconsistency. Now, I want to begin right there. Because as some of you remember, we talked about hypocrisy last week. Challenging phonies, right? And Jesus, this is interesting, Jesus was very harsh, as we saw, with spiritually phony people. He called these Pharisees and teachers of the law, he called them uh, whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. He called them snakes, a brood of vipers, Didn't have a lot of kind things to say. He was trying to get their attention, as we saw, and get them to turn from their wickedness. But they were hypocritical. There's a difference between a hypocrite and someone who's just inconsistent. You contrast that with the way Jesus related to Simon Peter. He's almost always very kind, very gentle, very patient with Simon. Now, my question is why? Why such a dramatic difference in the way he related. And here's where I want our study to begin. We've got to be discerning enough to know the difference between a sheer hypocrite who has no intention of changing, who feels no remorse over their hypocrisy, and who has a hardened, cynical heart, versus a person who is simply inconsistent, but they're a genuine follower of Christ, Their heart is malleable 
in God's hands, but they're simply inconsistent right now. There is a big, big difference between the two. And one of the most important things we'll ever do is seek God to discern that. By the way, that employee that I mentioned in the beginning, one of the reasons we decided it was time to let him go is because in talking with him, And in checking further into his life, we saw there were some areas where, honestly, it was hard to even call him a follower of Christ. And some of these things were so counter to what he claimed to stand for that we came to the conclusion, we're not dealing here just with a person who's inconsistent. We're dealing with some sheer hypocrisy here. And so we decided it was time to let him go. But that's one of the things that we need to discern. A second lesson I believe that's important is that we should be realistic. Some people are more susceptible to falling than others. Now, if your Bible's open there to Luke 22, would you look with me at these scriptures beginning in verse 31? Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail And when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. Wow. Now, on the surface, it may look like Jesus is not exercising good leadership there, right? I thought leaders were supposed to paint a positive future for people, boost their ego, boost their self-esteem, help them to be all they can be. And yet Jesus is saying, look, Pete, you're going to fail, dude. You're going to fall. Well, I don't think Jesus is being pessimistic. I'd like to say he is positively realistic. And there is a significant difference between the two. Jesus knew Simon Peter well. He had walked with him, done ministry with him, taught him, discipled him now for about three years. He knew his tendencies. He knew his temperament. He knew his background. He knew where he was weak. And Jesus wasn't being a downer. He was simply being positively realistic. Peter, I just want you to know, you're about to face a kind of temptation and stress and trial that you've never faced before. And much as Satan had gotten permission to sift Job in the Old Testament, apparently a similar thing is going on here. And Satan is going to be sifting you and testing you Jesus is basically saying the rock is about to become a pebble. He goes on, verse 33. But he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. You'll deny three times that you know me. Now, What are some of the factors that go into inconsistency, that contribute to it? I'm sure there are a lot, but I want to mention three, that if you're trying to help people in your workplace, in your small group, as you're trying to disciple people, as you're trying to help your own family get closer to Christ and grow from beginning in Christ to close to Christ to becoming truly Christ-centered people. I think there are three things we really need to be aware of. Number one is temperament. Now, hear me closely. Every temperament, you guys are, many of you are familiar with different temperaments. We 
classically call those the phlegmatic, you know, the melancholy temperament, the, the sanguine temperament, you know. And those are three of them. And then there's the one that's dictatorial and, and dominating and, and domineering. And it, the one that Peter is here, he's a sanguine. And I would simply say to you that while all the different temperament styles have upsides and downsides, just be realistic, one of the downsides of the sanguine temperament is they're more prone to being hot and cold, up and down, uh, committed and then lukewarm. Not picking on sanguines, it's simply a reality. And if we know anything about Simon Peter, he had a sanguine temperament. Second, is constant pressure. For those of you who may be leaders, maybe you have a lot of resources and there's a lot of pressure that comes with managing that or perhaps you're in a pressure cooker at work and a lot of people look to you and your every move is scrutinized. There's just a reality. Pressure can cause fatigue. If not physical fatigue, it can cause emotional fatigue, and you can feel enervated and stressed out, and it can lead to inconsistency. But third, we need to be aware that new circumstances can also contribute to this. You're in a new place, a new environment, a new school, a new city, a new job, a new set of circumstances. It often leads to inconsistent behavior. When someone's a new believer, for instance, and they've confessed faith in Christ as an adult, they're more prone to inconsistent living than someone who's already followed Christ for many, many years and has become a mature Christian. And so we just need, none of these things excuse inconsistency, but they do help to explain it. I hope that makes sense. When you see a little one-year-old baby about to take his first step, it's an exciting moment, right? You've got the video camera out. You're ready to film this moment. You're excited. You're watching this little one-year-old. And when he takes that first step, you applaud and cheer him and jump up and down. But you know what? You know what's about to happen. He's about to fall. That's what one-year-olds who are learning how to walk do. And you don't say when he falls, oh, I'm so disappointed in you. Oh, you can't be in this family anymore. What do you mean falling like that? No, you know that's a part of the deal. And you encourage him to get back up and take another step or two. But if that child at five-year-old is falling every other step, you've got a real problem on your hands. So all of these things contribute to inconsistency. None of them excuse it, but all of them help explain it a bit. And if we're honestly in the ministry of trying to let our life be our ministry and trying to help the people around us, we just need to be aware what kind of season are they in. And it will make a huge difference in our understanding, our compassion, our patience, and how we tend to relate to them and help them along. Third lesson. Be honest, inconsistency needs to be confronted. Now, if your Bible's still open there, starting in verse 55, we see how Peter fell just as Jesus had predicted he would. 
But when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. Now, you all know the story. The other disciples fled in fear. Peter was the only one at this point who was willing to at least follow from a distance. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. Maybe Peter rationalized that he was serving as sort of a spy here and he didn't want to blow his cover. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you're also one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. Oliver Wendell Holmes said, sin has many tools, but a lie is the handle that fits them all. And Simon Peter is now blatantly lying. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Now, Matthew's gospel right here is the strongest of all the gospels. It It makes it even more intense. It says that he began to curse as he insisted in his oaths that he didn't even know who Jesus was. And then verse 60b says, just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. And then 61a says, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Now i got a question for you. What kind of look do you think that was? Interesting question, right? Here's where I wish we were all in a small group right now. Because the advantage of being in a small group when your Bible is open and you're studying the Word of God together is you can stop and and ask questions and you can have wonderful dialogue back and forth with the facilitator and the leader in the group. I wonder what kind of look that was. What do you think it was? Well, let me ask you another question. When a tender-hearted 11-year-old boy is playing in some child uh, baseball league, some young people, little league or something like that, and he's up to bat and the bases are loaded and his team's behind by one run and he strikes out and walks dejectedly back toward the dugout. The game is over and he looks up toward his dad in the stands and his dad is looking right at him. What kind of look do you think a loving father would have at that moment? Do you think it'd be anger? Do you think it'd be clenched fist? How dare you do this? No, I, I think that father's look, and I think Jesus' look at Simon Peter when he looked straight at him, I think it was a look of compassionate understanding. Because the Bible says in Hebrews 4 that as our high priest, Jesus has been tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. And therefore, he understands what it's like to be in that pressure cooker. He understands what it's like to be tempted and to feel weak. And I think that dad dad in the stands could hardly wait until he could get to his son after that game and throw his arms around him and encourage him and say, son, it's okay. Everybody strikes out. Don't be dejected. You're going to have many more chances. Come on, let's, 
let's talk about it, but let's, let's move on and understand there's a better day coming. I believe that Jesus gave an incredible look at Simon Peter because he wanted him to know that, yes, you failed, but Peter, if you choose to, you can fail forward. You can fail forward. Verse 61 goes on. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord. The Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Can I say something to you? If you have blown it big time, if you have failed and fallen and maybe you've actually denied Christ or acted as though you didn't really love him or believe in him. Maybe you have failed your family. Maybe you failed your spouse. Can I say something to you? While you have failed, would you be wise enough to fail forward? In a wonderful little book called Art and Fear, the co-authors of this little book talk about a teacher in a ceramics class that divided the class into two groups. And they would be graded according to quantity or quality in the ceramics class. And the first group in the ceramics class, they were going to be graded totally according to quantity. If they created 50 pots, they'd get an A. 40 pots a B and so forth. But the other group, the quality group, just had to create one pot. One pot, but it better be a good one. Question, which group do you think created the best pot? It's kind of counterintuitive. But the authors in Art and Fear say it was the quantity group that created the best pots. Because as they began to churn them out, and they saw their disasters, and some of them were disasters, horribly misshapen, pathetic pots. They learned from that, and they improved, and they failed forward and got better and better. The quality group, on the other hand, sat around theorizing about perfection. They worried about it, but they never really got any better. I believe there's a lesson in that for us. No pot, no matter how misshapen, is an ultimate failure as long as it's just a stepping stone on the road to an A. If you're here today and you've fallen and you've fell and you've blown it and you've disappointed God and others, I want you to know something. If you're wise, you will repent of that sin, you will realize that mistake, whatever it was, and you will fail forward and become all God designed you to be. Well, there's one final lesson here I want us to see, and that's kind of the essence, I think, of where we need to learn to help people be what God designed them to be. That final lesson is this. Be encouraging because the inconsistent frequently need boosting up. A number of years ago, uh, in my first assignment out of seminary, I was working in Amsterdam 
on a conference called um, International Conference for Itinerant Evangelists. And I was just a young man in the office, 24 years old, new employee, really wanted to prove myself, single young guy, willing to work hard and long hours. And, And I was given an assignment by the executive director of this massive conference called Amsterdam 86. He gave me an assignment, and I felt so special to create a new application. We had an eight-page application for these evangelists all around the world, and there were going to be about 10,000 of them coming in, and he wanted me to redesign the application. I was very familiar with it. I'd been grading the applications of the ones that had come in, and uh, so I took it seriously. I spent over 100 hours on that project. Now, my understanding, he wanted me to create some templates, some examples of what we could do to change it. And we're going to bring all the department heads together, all the important people on staff. And I was going to get to shine in that moment. I was so pumped up. Boy, I worked hard. I put in extra hours. I worked a number of Saturdays all day on that project, getting ready for that big day when all these leaders with the Billy Graham team were going to come together, and we're going to be together in that room, and I was going to shine, baby, and show them my work and blow them away. That was my plan. The day came. Sure enough, all the department heads came together. I had all of my... uh, No, handouts I was going to hand around to facilitate this discussion as I understood it and so on. And the executive director said, okay, Rex, uh, show us your product. Show us the new application that you've created. And I said, well, I have have four different templates here uh, that I'm going to pass around and we'll be able to discuss those. So I started passing it. He said, I ask you to design a new application. Do you have it? Is it complete? I said, oh, I'm so sorry. I've come today ready to facilitate a discussion. I didn't know I had the authority to just design something uh, on my own. I've come today with these four examples of what, and he cut me off and began to tell me that I was wasting everybody's time and so on and so forth. And it was one of the most humiliating moments of my life as I had totally botched the assignment. 24-year-old young guy looking to climb the ladder, looking to blow people away, looking to impress and show how sharp and smart I was. And I had totally blown it. And everybody kind of just dropped their heads, embarrassed for me, and it was embarrassing. And so... The, direct, the executive director just cut the meeting short, apologized to everybody for kind of wasting their time that morning, and we all went on our way. But a coworker of mine in the moments that followed, his name was Mark Abrahams, a wonderful guy, came in one of the lowest moments of my life to that point, came and put his arm around me and said, Rex, don't let this define you. You just misunderstood the project, that's all. You've got great stuff here. We can use this to help create a new application. But listen, don't let this get you down. And it's amazing what just a few words of encouragement like that can do for a person. Do you have someone in your life like that who's missed it, who's blown it, who's made a big mistake? You can make a difference in their life, just like Mark Abrahams did in mine. I didn't even know if I wanted to continue. I didn't know what my future would be. I was 
so depressed. But he came and lifted my spirits. I love people who encourage others, don't you? So I shot an email out this week to the elders of Grace Fellowship. I shot an email out to all of our campus pastors and an email to our executive team and a few other leaders. And I asked them one simple question. I said, look, I'm going to be talking about encouragement in this weekend's sermon. Could you all help me by just mentoring me on this? Tell me just one or two ideas that you believe are great ways to make encouragement more effective. And what you're about to see is what the leaders of grace said. They blew me away with their response, by the way. It was fantastic. And so I want to give you seven things now. I just, they said a whole lot more, but I just truncated it, distilled it down to seven pithy statements about how to make encouragement more effective. And some of you really need to put this to use in your life with someone right away. Number one, begin with high expectations of people. The elders and the leaders of grace said, look, we need to actually believe in a person and help them become what God designed them to be, not just what we want them to be. Second, we need encouragement must be genuine and sincere if it's going to be effective. Nobody wants pure flattery, right? If somebody comes to you, in fact, if you just feel you're being flattered or it's phony encouragement, it can actually be counterproductive, okay? If somebody constantly says to you, oh, you look nice today, oh, you look nice today, after a while, it doesn't really mean much, does it? One of my favorite Proverbs is Proverbs twenty-five sixteen. It says, if you find honey, eat just enough, too much of it, and you will vomit. Isn't that a great proverb? Don't you just love how practical the Bible is? Just puts it right out there. Too much and you'll vomit. And sometimes you just want to throw up on the insincere flattery of people. You want to say, come on, just get real. Just one or two authentic words would be worth more than all this puff up and flattery that you're doing. Third, the leaders of grace said timing matters. We ought to just make it our mission to go around looking for someone doing something well, doing something right, and then remind them of, them and, of it and thank them for it and encourage them in that and do it promptly because timing makes a difference. Fourth, encourage toward progress rather than perfection, the elders said. In other words, if you wait for perfection, you may never get a chance to encourage. But if you encourage the least little bit of growth, or even if someone fails, if you come along them and say, look, let's learn from this and try another way. Let's learn from this and try another way. You're encouraging them toward progress in their life. Number five, be specific in your encouragement. Instead of saying, oh, you did a great job leading that small group, say, you know what? You really were effective, but what I particularly liked was how you asked these open-ended probing questions, and you, you did it with such great eye contact, and then, then it was amazing. You waited. You didn't bail people out in those awkward, silent moments. You waited for them to actually process that question and give their response back. Oh, it was brilliant leadership. Specific is dynamic. General tends to be weak. But specific is dynamic. 
Number six, your leaders said nonverbal encouragement is also important. In other words, it's not just words here. An honest smile with someone, a great handshake, a, a pat on the back, attentive listening eyes as you talk can make a huge difference and make the words more powerful. And finally, don't forget the little things the leader said. Try to remember important days, whether it be birthdays, anniversaries, things like that, if that's appropriate in your setting. But also, notice extra effort. If you know someone struggles with being on time, applaud them and encourage them when they make the meeting on time. Applaud that extra effort, that extra mile that they go, because little things really make a difference. Bottom line, the leaders of grace said encouragement is one of the key ingredients God uses to help us become more consistent. So who are you going to help with this? God gave us his amazing word, not to fill our heads with information, but to change our lives. So as we wrap up, I want to say to you that I believe this is exactly what Jesus did with Simon Peter. Remember, Simon had blown it big time around that fire there when challenged by the people around the fire. But Jesus, after his resurrection, I believe specifically sought to encourage Peter because he knew he had a great future. When you read in Mark's gospel, chapter 16, verse 7, when the women are at the tomb and Jesus is risen, an angel says, he's not here, he's risen. Go help tell his disciples and Peter. And I believe when they went back and told Simon Peter, hey, the angel mentioned you specifically. He said, really? And that boosted his self-esteem and gave him some confidence again. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 5, as it's list, Paul's listing all these people that Jesus appeared to after his resurrection, he singles out Peter. And there was apparently a special individual meeting with Simon Peter where Jesus encouraged him. But I believe the most encouraging encounter of all that helped to reinstate and recommission Simon Peter was when they met, and you can read this in John 21. They met by the Sea of Galilee, sometimes called Tiberias, in John's Gospel. And they'd been fishing all night, and in the morning they'd caught nothing. They saw this lone figure silhouetted against the, silhouetted against the shore, and he called out, have you caught any fish? If you've been fishing all night and gotten nothing, that's not a question you want to hear. But he said, cast the net on the right side, on the other side of the boat. They did and caught 153 fish. And John said, it's the Lord. Peter said, yeah, nobody could do a miracle like that. And sanguine of all sanguines that he was, he dove into the water and began to swim to shore while the others began to bring the boat in, tugging the fish. And Jesus had another fire go. He had a fire going brawling some fish on he had some bread and i believe jesus intentionally did that as a moment of encouragement for simon peter he deliberately simulated the same kind of setting where peter had denied him and he used that as a setting to reinstate him and here's my final challenge to you you see i've just noticed through many years 
That whether you go on and become the consistent rock God designed you to be or whether you continue to vacillate and flounder as a Christian and be inconsistent often depends on which fire you're warming your hands at. Think about it. There were two fires in Peter's story. One was built by mere men, the other kindled by Christ. One fire had a cast of characters around it that were hostile to Christ. The other was surrounded by his friends. One fire was a place of confusion for Simon Peter. The other a place of great clarity. One was a place of cowardice. The other a place of great courage. In one fire, at one fire, Peter denied three times that he knew Christ. At the other fire, he confessed three times that he loved him. At one fire, he distanced himself from Christ. At the other fire, he rededicated his life to Christ. At one fire, he cursed because of his fear of being found out. At the other fire, he was recommissioned for a lifetime of service. Bottom line, one fire was the devil's fire. The other fire was the fire kindled by Christ. Question. Which fire are you warming your hands at today? Father, help us to be consistent in our following of you. Lord, help us to live such excellent lives in this society, in this culture that's increasingly hostile to you that there would be such a positive, distinctive difference, such a consistency, such an excellence that people would know that it's all because of you. And Father, those of us who have inconsistent people in our lives that are causing frustration and difficulty, help us to be appropriately challenging and encouraging so that they can become the rock that you designed them to be. This is our prayer, O Lord, and we pray it in Jesus' name, amen, amen.